Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. Hi, I'm Kristen Williams. Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast. Today, we're joined by Tim McFarland, who is Vice President, Advanced Sales Attorney, and Watcher of All Things Legal. Tim is here to talk to us about a lot of the rulings that have come down from various appeals and um, courts, as well as the tax court. So, Tim, thanks for joining us on the pod today. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. We've got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time, so we want to jump right in. Um, And let's start by focusing on captive insurance companies. There's been a lot of talk about captive insurance companies, and the IRS keeps trying to figure out how do they decide which ones are legitimate and which ones are mere tax avoidance structures. And there have been a couple of recent cases in the captive insurance space. Want to start with those for us? Sure. Um, In the last sort of year and a half and earlier this year, uh, three important cases came down uh, from the tax court, as well as some of the appellate court, federal appellate courts around the country. The first case is Kaler Land and Development, which is a tax court memorandum decision. The second one is Reserve Mechanical Corporation, which made its way up to the 10th Circuit. And then the final one is CIC Services LLC versus the IRS. This is an interesting case that is working its way through the 6th Circuit. Um, It's a case out of Tennessee. All of these cases revolve around whether or not there's a legitimate, a legitimate uh, micro-captive or an 83, 831B captive insurance company. And uh, not surprisingly, the IRS has gone after these captive insurance companies on the notion that they're not really providing life insurance in the classical sense of risk distribution um, and risk sharing. And the two cases, Reserve Mechanical and Kalor Land Development, point that up. Um, unfortunately, in both of these cases, the, the in, um, individuals who set up the captives, the company who set them up, didn't run them properly. They didn't cross all their I's, dot all their T's. They didn't get, they did, they may have done feasibility studies, but they didn't really determine whether or not they, there was actually a, a need for additional insurance. Both companies had, um, their, had, had their commercial insurance. So needless to say, the companies have um, lost at the IRS level and at the appellate level. Their deductions were denied. And more importantly, penalties were assessed against each of the companies for failure to um, properly state um, deductions because they were taking deductions for the, you know, the $1.2 million deductions for these. And the courts uh, eliminated those deductions and held that the companies weren't legitimate companies. And it's really important because a lot of these uh, plans use risk pooling, different ways of doing risk pooling to try and create that risk diversification. And in both of these cases, the IRS held and the tax court supported them that there was no risk distribution and therefore there was no real insurance and the risk pooling attempt didn't help at all. So Tim, do these three rulings mean that captive insurance companies are no longer a viable planning technique? I don't think it means that they're not a viable planning technique, but I do think it means that there's going to be continual scrutiny. And they will, and if you do not have actual risk distribution, it's not enough that you jump into a risk pool and you share risk among other captive insurance companies or you're insuring some other outside risk. 
Um, some of these plans use automotive leasing agreements as, uh, as insuring those. Uh, you're not going to be able to. You're not going to be legitimate if you do that. There is some commentators who are suggesting that the whole idea of pool captives as risk distribution are done, and that they're not going to survive IRS scrutiny. Suffice it to say, you can still look at at it, but you're going to need your own independent analysis. Your tax attorney, your CPA, are going to need to do their own due diligence. You can't rely on the captive promoters. You've got to have your own legal opinion. And if it sounds too good to be true, it's going to be too good to be true. That feels like the key takeaway from that, doesn't it? (laughs) The last thing I'd like to mention is the last one, which is CIC services. That's an interesting case. This case has actually gone up to the Supreme Court and back down again, and it keeps going up and down. The takeaway from this case is this basically was a promoter and case captive insurance management company. And they were, the IRS went after them under notice 2016-47. This is a notice that put the rest of the world on notice that the IRS is looking very, very carefully at captive insurance companies. Uh, what turned out to be, to have happened in this case is that the notice has been struck down under the Administrative Procedures Act. It's a technical issue. Suffice it to say, um, the courts have held that the IRS didn't do what it was supposed to do when it makes this type of ruling, and therefore the notice was struck. The, what the, was important from the notice is that, as you may know, when you have a listed transaction or a transaction of interest, you have reporting obligations. Both the promoter and the taxpayer have reporting obligations that they have to give to the IRS. This essentially gives the IRS the ammunition they need to attack. By striking down that notice, the individuals do no, no longer have to do that reporting. However, what's interesting about this case is the IRS was required to return the all the information they got from this promoter management company, but the court refused to re- make the IRS give back all the information they've collected from different captives. And so people who have captives out there, the IRS may have your information and they may be coming after you. And so again, make sure that you get, if, if you have clients who have captive insurance companies, it would be a good idea uh, and a public service to let them know that they probably should get in touch with their CPA and their attorney to make sure that, that they are going to be okay. And if not, that they do some kind of remedial action to um, get out of them. All right. Well, thank you for that update on captives. We have another sort of planning technique that's much more common and universal than a captive insurance company is, but like a captive seems to have a lot of rules that you have to file, follow in order to have it respected. Um, specifically talking about a recent case about IRA and the distributions that came from that IRA. Yes, this is an interesting case. It's, it's actually an unfortunate case. Um, this is an individual who retired from his job at age 55, had a 401k, um, nothing wrong with retiring at 55. And if you retire at 55, that's a separation from service and you can begin taking distributions. What this individual did, however, was roll over their 401k to an IRA. Two years later, having retired, this individual realized that they needed some money to live on and they needed to do some repairs to their house. So they took a distribution and the um, IRA company, the, the custodian, sent a 1099 to them. This individual reported the distribution but didn't report the 10% tax. The IRS came in and audited 
and said, hey, you owe the 10% penalty, you're under 59 and a half. And the uh, taxpayer replied, wait a minute, I took this money from my 401k and I just took an early distribution for my living needs and for uh, needing to make necessary repairs to my home. And here's where the, um, the, the issue hit the, hit the taxpayer. And that is that the IRS argue you're not entitled to either of those as a um, way of avoiding the penalty tax. And the tax court agreed. And although they recognize the equities of the issues involved here, that this individual needed this money, they said, we are bound by the statute. And what, what the rule is, is you cannot, once you put money into an IRA, it doesn't matter where it came from. You're now under the IRA rules. And the there is no rule under IRA distributions for, for distributions um, after, a, after a separation from service. You must be 59 and a half. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because your 401k, you're working. You leave work, you can start taking distributions. But this individual made a perfectly honest mistake and rolled over to an IRA and lost any potential benefits he would have had had he kept it in the 401k. It's a really unfortunate result, but the takeaway is to make sure that if you're having a separation from service or you're doing something with your 401k, rolling it to an IRA or anything like that, make sure that you talk to an advisor to talk about what may happen to you in the future as a result of making that move. If you can stay with your 401k, it may make sense to do so rather than rolling over. You really have to ask yourself, do I am I going to need this money? If I'm over 59 and a half, it's not an issue. But if I'm between 55 and 60, I need to really think now about what I do with my IRAs and what kind of distributions I take. If not, you may end up, unlike this unfortunate individual, needing money and then getting hit with a 10% uh, tax on top of we'll talk about salt into the wound, but um, the tax court felt that they could not do anything for this individual, and they were stuck with the result. That is an unfortunate result from a, a planning technique that probably needed more thought than it really got. Um, speaking of planning and estate planning, one of the the things we rely on pretty regularly is marital deduction. I'm going to assume a marital deduction, and then you know buy life insurance for estate taxes do above that or outside of that. There was a, a recent case that had an interesting sort of twist on the marital deduction. Yes, this is the Grossman case. And again, when it was a tax court memorandum decision, um, and it's a very interesting case. Mr. Grossman uh, died, a very wealthy individual, had developed a, a large estate. He had been married three times. And when he died, his third wife, um, was going to receive a marital deduction of $79 million of his $87 million estate. All things working well. She's the surviving spouse. She should get the marital deduction, and we go on our merry way. Step in the IRS. The IRS says, wait on wait one second. We don't think that your third wife is actually a legitimate spouse. And the reason they said that was because they held, the IRS looked back at this gentleman's history, and this history goes way back, many, many years, and said, you never had a valid divorce from your first wife. Therefore, not only your second marriage, but the winter marriage we care about, your third marriage is illegitimate. And therefore, there, you, she was not your surviving spouse, and therefore, you're not allowed to a marital deduction. Well, this went to the tax court, and, the, and this is a new case out of New York. 
And the, the tax court said, you know what, the IRS, you even have your own rule on this. There are some other rulings on this. But New York State says that you look to the place of celebration of the marriage. And if the marriage was legitimate in the place you celebrated it, then it's good enough for New York and it's good enough for the federal estate tax marital deduction. Interestingly here, Mr. Grossman um, had tried to get a divorce from his first wife and was unsuccessful. So he went to a rabbinical court. He and his wife both agreed to go to a rabbinical court and they got a um, religious divorce, which is known as a get. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly in Hebrew. But uh, they did get a religious divorce. Then fast forward many years later, uh, he and his third wife went to Israel. And she, he was Jewish and she is Jewish. And therefore, under Israeli law, there, the Israeli, um, the state of Israel will recognize a religious divorce and recognize a religious marriage. And so Israel recognized the marriage. And they later moved back to New York, lived 27 years happily together as an openly married couple, and then he passed away. And the tax court said, you look to Israel. Israel said that this is a valid marriage, and there was a valid divorce. Therefore, New York would recognize this, and therefore, IRS, you must recognize the marital reduction. And so some very good fact patterns here and some very good planning and some very good lawyering um, got this gentleman what he was entitled to, which was an $87 million marital reduction. Sounds like the takeaway from this situation is to, particularly when there's a second marriage, second spouse, to make sure that you have all the documentation needed so that your state doesn't have to go through that discussion with the IRS about whether you get a marital deduction or not. Yeah, that's definitely the takeaway. Anytime there's multiple marriages and divorces, make sure that, that somewhere in the file, all of that is documented and available to the survivor um, so that they can get it to the attorney and when they're filing the estate tax return. It's a great result and it's the correct result. So we're, we're glad that the tax court saw it that way. Yes. I'd like to jump ahead to another common planning technique, which is the charitable contribution. And I'm sure like me, you talk to people pretty regularly about how you determine the value of the asset. The asset is not cash that's being contributed to the foundation. And there was a, a recent ruling on that very issue. Yes, this is the Pankratz case. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Another cat's, uh, tax court memorandum decision. And this, the takeaway, as we'll see for a second, is how not to do this. This gentleman gave away almost a half a million dollars worth of gas and oil interest to his church. He gave away some real estate to other charities and made other large gifts. The gentleman filled out the form that you're required to fill out when you get property interest. And right on the form, it says you must have a qualified appraisal in order to substantiate the deduction. He did not get qualified appraisals for any of these properties. And therefore, the IRS denied the deduction and more importantly, imposed substantial understatement penalties for failure to report income and pay income taxes. Tax court looked at this and they said, yep. You didn't get a qualified appraisal. Statute is clear. You're required. It even says so right on the top of the form. Get a qualified appraisal. You did not get one. Therefore, you, your, your tax deductions are denied. And because this is so clear and you didn't seek any professional help other than provide your CPA the, docu the, the, the amounts, they substantiated the 20% extra penalties. So the takeaway from this case is 
Anytime you give a non-cash contribution, you should make sure that you talk to your tax advisor about getting a qualified appraisal. And it's not enough just to get an appraisal. You must get a qualified appraisal from an expert in the area with respect to the property that's being appraised. And you cannot just rely on your CPA. Um, and you cannot and should not rely on the um, charitable organization either. That was That's another mistake that you can make is relying on charitable organizations to tell you what to do. There is no excuse for large charitable deductions of property interest to not have your tax advisor be involved and get that qualified appraisal and, and attach it to the return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not enough just to get it. You got to actually put it in the file. Um, but let's just remind our listeners, since life insurance is the answer to all the questions and life insurance and the foundation or other charitable entity is quite powerful, can they just rely on the issuing carrier for evaluation? Can you get- yeah, That's an interesting IPR? question. You would think, since the, since the Form 712 is, requ- is required when you make a gift, that the IRS would say that what the, what the life insurance company says is the value, because that's what they're reporting. And the answer is no. You cannot rely on, there is no safe harbor. You cannot rely on your 712 or an informal report from the insurance company. You actually have to go out and get an appraisal. Fortunately, we have, uh, as we know, we have people out there, members that we work with and our firms can work with to get that appraisal. Um, But that's a very important point that we we don't want to lose sight of. Whenever you're thinking of giving an insurance policy um, to a um, charity, you have to get that appraisal. And uh, same thing with annuity, although we don't want to really give annuities to charities. But yes, do not give a life insurance policy to a charity without attaching a professional valuation from a valuation firm. Thank you for that reminder. And keeping with our theme of common planning techniques that have gone sideways on the taxpayer, um, there was also a case about a family LLC or LLP and a gift of those interests. That is also an issue where the taxpayer can run into some problems. Can you talk to us about that case? Sure. Um, In this case, uh, this is the estate of Warren versus the commissioner, another tax court decision. Um, Mrs. Warren decided to put um, a bunch of real estate into um, some LLCs. And this was done for family planning purposes. And the strangely, and this is going to be one of our takeaways, there were there was language in the LLC operating agreement that gave way too much power and control to non-member interests. Those are the interests we typically, the non-voting interests, if you will, um, that we give away to the trust. And um, so in, in, with, with these provisions that were in there, when it came time to value these interests, the IRS basically said, hey, lack of control and lack of marketability, which we rely on to discount the value of these, we're only going to give you a 4% and a 5% discount. And the reason for that is because you have these provisions in your operating agreement and that you shouldn't have them in there. Well, the IRS is going to tell you that, but you, they really shouldn't have been in there. They give too much control. And therefore, you really don't have a marketability or, or a, a, a minority interest. Um, the, the key to that is whenever we're doing planning for our uh, clients and we're doing FLP, LLC, Dynasty Trust planning, and we're going to shift interests over into an LLC or an ILIT, um, it's not enough to just have the corporate or tax attorney draft the LLC. 
they need to be working in con in concert with the estate planning attorney and with all of the other members of the planning team so that that tax attorney who's going to draft the LLC knows what provisions to put in and what provisions not to put it in so that they do not affect the um, ultimate result of, of uh, getting valuation discounts. So it's another reason why we all need to work together and we all need to share information and make sure that everything, all the I's and T's are dotted and that we do the right thing. The second and perhaps more important issue here is um, the IRS also found that because Mrs. Warren gave interests to different charities um, and, and gave those interests to one charity, one interest to another charity, fractional interests come into play. And if you go back 30 years, this is the idea that if I, uh, uh, if I give my two daughters each a minority interest in um, my shares of stock, it's not what I gave. It's what they received that gets the discount. So each of my daughter's shares get to be discounted. Well, this can work in the reverse to you, and it has, and it's a trap for the unwary, both in the marital reduction space and in the child reduction space, because the IRS will say, you're absolutely right. If you give a fractional interest, then we value each interest that the charity received or the marital trust received, and therefore we're going to put um, deductive, we're going to put uh, discounts on them, which can really mess up your charitable deduction because where you thought you were going to get a full marital deduction or a full charitable deduction, you split it. Therefore, for a, for charitable deduction purposes on the estate tax return, you don't get the full amount; you get the deductible amount, and that can throw you into iterated calculations. And this, and you don't need to worry about that. The takeaway is you end up paying estate taxes that you didn't think you were going to have to pay. So the bottom line is, if you're going to do marital trust planning and you're going to do charitable trust planning or both, make sure that you give full interests. You may have to divide up your properties so that you don't end up in a situation where you end up with fractional interests. This has happened many times over the last 30 years um, and it will continue to happen and it is a trap for the unwary and we need to be aware of that. And to the extent that we all are aware of it, if we see it, we can raise it and then potentially behind the scenes, we can correct it before death occurs or the gift tax or estate tax return is audited. Suffice it to say the tax court held all of that. The tax court held your minority and marketability discounts are what they are. And yes, we're going to apply these discounts and you are not going to get the result you thought you were going to get on your estate tax return. Okay. That is a really helpful conversation because I know that um, LLCs and discounting is a pretty um, common staple used in estate planning. So for our final case today of this podcast, um, there was a ruling recently that got a lot of buzz, and it was about the restricted property trust. And what did that ruling really mean in the context of the RPT? And is it a technique that we should or could be using what did the court say about that? So you would give us some insights into that as our final case. Sure, and, and I'll be quick on this. Um, most of our readers know that what the restricted property trust is. If not, there's you can go on marketing exchange and you can see a paper that you and I put together a number of years ago on that. What's interesting about this case is that man construction put in place an RPT for two for its two owner shareholder employees. And all three of them 
were audited by the IRS. And the, the IRS came in and looked at this. And, and by the way, the RPT was looked at as a listed transaction. There was a notice, notice 2007-83. And because it was a listed transaction, that not only put the promoters and material advisors on, uh, on notice, it also put taxpayers on notice and it put reporting obligations on all three of those parties to file forms with the IRS to let them know that they did this. Suffice it to say that the owner and the company, the owners and the company did not do this. They ended up being fined under the notice. And the notice said, and the IRS basically held, you, you, know, you have to uh, pay these fines because you didn't tell us that you were participating in these transactions. This case went up to the Sixth Circuit. Um, and, and so basically this case was out of Michigan. He went up to the Sixth Circuit. Um, real quickly, if you recall, the CIC Services Captive Insurance case came out of, out of Tennessee. When man construction was de decided, um, and what basically the Sixth Circuit said is, the notice violates the Administrative Procedures Act again, and therefore IRS, you must, uh, you, you cannot issue these penalties and you gotta refund them. This, the Tennessee court, when it got the case back from, uh, from the Supreme Court and re-ran it all and redid it all, they felt they were now bound by the Supreme, the, the Sixth Circuit's decision in Reserve Mechanical, and that's why they struck down the other notice. So both notices have been struck down. So what does this mean for folks who are in the RPT? It's, a, it, it, it's an important decision in the sense that the reporting obligations for the clients, the taxpayer, for the material advisors, and for the promoters are thrown out for now. That doesn't mean that the IRS may not try and go through the hoops it needs to jump through in order to, to make this a listed transaction. But what's most important is the court, people should not understand whether, wherever you come down on whether the RPT is legitimate or not, the decision in this case did not say that the RPT gives you the promised benefits it gives you. This was about whether the notice violated the Administrative Procedure Act and was held to have done so. The IRS has not, we do not have a tax court case, nor do we have a federal court case that approves of the RPT. So we will still have to wait and see whether or not um, the RPT is ultimately held to be valid or not. So the Sixth Circuit seems to be a fan of late of striking down notices, but not actually opining on the underlying transaction. They've found themselves yes. a loophole, yeah. huh? Yes, exactly. Yes. And for those of you uh, just, just uh, who may be interested, it's Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. You kind of go right down the middle of the of the Midwest there, and excuse me, the old Midwest, and that is the Sixth Circuit. So if you're in that circuit, you're okay. IRS is following this. Their, their, their notice have been struck down. They're, they're going to follow this. Um, what's interesting, though, is we don't know how much uh, information the IRS has. Just like in the captive insurance company cases, we don't know how much they may have collected already. And, they, and therefore, who, who's done this and who hasn't done this? Again, we're not. you and I are not talking about the merits of the RPT. We're simply saying that the courts have yet to decide on the merits. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and running through all of these cases with us. Um, for all of our listeners out there, don't worry if you didn't write down all the notes. Tim 
worked up a summary of all of the cases, including some interesting ones that we just didn't have time to get to. And those will be linked in the email that sends out this podcast. So you can use it as a reference and share it with centers of influence or anybody else that you think would find this discussion interesting and helpful. Thanks so much for your time today, Tim. Thank you. And everyone have a great day.